Welcome to the Launch University Podcast, turning good intentions into reality in your career, business, and life. Here's your host, Kevin Jennings. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Launch University Podcast. Kevin here with you today, and I have the privilege of being joined by, I, I would say, new friend might be presumptuous on my end, but I I just have a feeling. I have a feeling. Uh, his name is Steve Dietzik, and he is the founder of Lasting. Lasting is the number one relationship counseling app on iTunes, um, and they are affiliated with the team that brings you The Knot and The Bump and all of these other wonderful apps many of us have used who are uh, either newly married or new parents Mm -hmm. um, as we navigate life. And this app, I feel like, is that next step in that journey. And while I Mm -hmm. could read his awesome bio, uh, which (laughs) I'll probably do at some other point, I think that I'm going to let Steve introduce himself because I think that his story is so much richer, obviously, than any, you know, list of accomplishments that we can just kind of rattle off. But if he's if he's too humble, then I'll jump back in and and I'll make sure you know why he's awesome. So, Steve, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kevin. Very flattering intro. I really appreciate it. I think we'll become fast friends, but I'm super happy to be here and share any wisdom I might have. Although if I say any wisdom, it's not from me, but from some experience I had that <laughs> I, fa- I failed at and gained some knowledge. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And, and so, Steve, one of the things that came out really fast uh, when I was looking at what you were doing and what you've done over your professional history, and that is this idea that the average person doesn't like dream of saving the world's marriages. Like, hey, how, my job yeah. is just, just I'm just going to come in here. I'm going to create an app that's going to change our relationships. And and so I just want to hear what like, what was your initial plan for your career and kind of like how do we get here? What's yeah. the what's the Steve Dietzik story? Oh, what a great question. This takes me back. Okay, so <laughs> I come from a pretty low income family and I um I wanted to get out of that. And so mm-hmm. I, I I thought to myself as a the kid in high school, I was like, who makes a lot of money? And that that became the source, the, the driving motivational source. And I thought in order to make a lot of money, you become a doctor or a lawyer. And I really liked science and I liked health. And so I said, let's be a doctor. So I went to Wheaton College and I was terrible at chemistry lab and biology. All those weed out classes that people who become pre-med get weeded out. I got weeded out. Wow. <laughs> and so I didn't know what to do. And so I, gosh, my first job, I, all I wanted to, I, I thought consultant sounded like a good word. Um, you get to solve problems with logic and you might make a bit of money as well. And you, can, you might be even catching a theme that I, my identity was wrapped up in this money thing. Hmm. And then I was really get really frustrated with my consultant job. And then I was just like, you know what, I'm going to do something I'm just really interested in. And I joined this old Fortune 500 company called Pitney Bowes. And Pitney Bowes invented the postage meter in 1929, if you can believe that. Wow. And, and uh, so, but they're they a $6 billion company in a very declining market. No one is sending letters anymore. And so I joined their corporate strategy team to, to help them grow. And this is just where my heart lit up. I was, I was really fascinated at what made companies grow. And one of the things we did besides pursue acquisitions and try to incubate other things was to actually found a venture capital firm inside the company to try and solicit business plans from our 40,000 employees. And then we use those as probes into new markets. And that I was fascinated by that concept. I was like, mm. wow, you can actually do this inside a big company. I thought venture capital firms were only in Silicon Valley. Mm. And so I, I just became utterly fascinated with, with that concept. 
And this kind of was, uh, I, as you, I started sensing a theme that would occur again and again and again throughout my past 15 years. And that's just to do whatever makes your heart sing, if you're given the opportunity to do that. And this venture capital thing just made my heart sing. And I, I lit up when I would get these business plans from inside the company. And I, I loved actually one of the ventures we ended up funding. I loved them so much. I asked my boss if I could leave my corporate role and work for that internally funded startup company. And they sold e-commerce software to retailers. And I was employee number five. And I was there in sales um, for a year. And then I got the idea for my very first company. And because I had been bitten by the entrepreneur bug, I just knew I had to do it. And luckily for me, my, my boss was very supportive. And that first venture was called Hoppit. <laughs> and Hoppit was a restaurant recommendation engine that was super sexy in 2010 when there weren't many. But now there's about 35 of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's less cool, but... We, I was just kind of frustrated at the time that my best buddy and I, um, this was a, by the way, this was not, um, this was not a big problem. This was a first world problem. <laughs> How to find the best restaurant. And so uh, when you go to Yelp, we had the exact same search results. And I just thought in this age of data that we should actually get personalized search results. And so, so that's what we set out to build. And we wanted to build a truly personalized search engine for things to do. Um, I can tell you all about that at some point. We don't have to go there right now, but it was we, we did every single thing wrong we could have done. Um, we started with a web app instead of a mobile app for a local service. We, I, I gave way too much equity away to my first set of investors. Tons of mistakes, but in the end, um, I, I feel very fortunate. Um, we built this really good technology. That's the one thing we did right, which could really take a large set of unstructured data and then make sense of it and then recommend stuff to people. And it turns out that that is exactly what the not wanted um, for their future in venue searches. When you're an engaged couple and you want to find a wedding venue, you run searches online. And you're like, what's in my area for my price point and our style? And that's exactly what our tech did. So it was a very unlikely acquirer. But once we started talking with them, it actually made total sense for them not only to acquire um, our technology and our company, but also our team who knew how to build these types of things. So I came into uh, the not as our director of product. And my number one task was to rebuild the Knott's wedding planning application. I had just gotten engaged to my now wife. I don't think that will ever happen again in my entire life where the thing I was building was exactly my life stage. Mm. Um, but it was so fun. And she and I had a lot of fun dreaming up uh, how to solve wedding planning problems. And I'm getting to the point. I'm, I'm believing no, no, I love story. it. This is great. This is great. But this, this all led to um, the next two and a half years um, we wanted to be truly user-centered designers at The Knot. So I would interview two engaged couples a week, and that lasted for two years. So wow. a couple hundred couples later, um, I learned everything about them. I learned why they argued about their guest list, how they would find their DJ. And I always loved ending my user interviews with the question, why are you getting married? And I got tons of interesting responses to that. But one thing I noticed right away uh, that there was the pattern of people having way too high of expectations for how easy marriage would be. I, I think a large majority of people who get married don't realize that it takes a lot of work, very intentional work. And that's not a bad thing because that work leads to a very satisfying relationship. Sure. But, but given the divorce rate is what it is, I, I kind of got a sense, even in year one at the knot, that, gosh, if we could actually reset expectations during the wedding planning phase, I think we could actually highly alleviate the divorce rate. And then, of course, our sister brand, also sitting under the same parent company, XO Group, is called The Bump. And The Bump serves one out of three first-time expecting couples, just a huge audience. And so I also learned from that team that 
70% of every couple in the country as a, a precipitous dip in marital satisfaction in years one, two, and three of their first baby, mm. which should be this should be this very joyful moment. It's met with a lot of hardship. And so we have these two very exciting life stages, marriage and baby, and yet it's met with this very counterintuitive sense of what's happening. Um, and, and oftentimes it can lead to depression and lots of problems that never get alleviated. And so I was kind of, I was really itching to be an entrepreneur again. Mm. My, my, wife, my wife and I had a deal that I would not be an entrepreneur for the first year of our marriage. <laughs> so that uh, we could really get a good foundation. And that was her foresight. She was very prophetic in that way. Yeah. Um, that, that was a good thing for me. I'm glad she set that, that rule down. But in year two, um, it, you know, I was, it was in my third year at the knot. I was ready to be an entrepreneur again. And so I actually ended up giving my two-week notice uh, to my boss, wow. um, our chief, chief product officer. And that, that triggered a set of events that I never could have predicted. Um, but it ended up that same day, I was a two-hour meeting block put on my calendar from XO Group CEO. And, you know, he was a good mentor to me. He had acquired my first company. And so, you know, he had given me lots of career and life advice. And so first and foremost, he was just like, what's happening? Why are you leaving? Tell me everything. Mm. And if possible, let's try to, let's try to find a way to keep you. But, you know, I had no, I had no intention of working out a deal or sure, anything like that. I just wanted to, I just wanted to be honest with him. And so, um, I poured out my heart, Kevin. I was like, I want to be an entrepreneur again. I've noticed this problem. I want to help marriages and that seems like a very worthy problem. And mm. I really want to work on that. I'm a newlywed myself and I would love a playbook for how to have a healthy marriage. That'd be incredible. And um, it was one of the most cinematic moments of my life because he didn't say a word as I poured out my heart, but he had this smirk on, on his face. And he's a really charming guy, like public company CEO by age 37. Wow. So he's really, he's really successful at what he does and he's very charming. But he's a sales guy, right? And salespeople try to take what they know and do something with that. But something amazing happened. He turned around and he grabbed the stack of papers and he handed them to me. And the stack of papers said how XO Group could lower America's divorce rate through the knot and the bump. And my heart just about sunk wow. into the depths of my stomach. And I was like, I, didn't, I couldn't even say where I was so surprised. And then he started talking wow. in a really cinematic moment for himself. He said, Steve, I couldn't just take a key product guy and throw him or her on a really crapshoot venture because we're not sure if this is going to work. Right. And, you know, we're, we're publicly traded. We need to focus on, on the knot and the bump. But like now that you've severed your contract, gosh, I think this opens up a host of interesting possibilities. And so um, true to his word, he was faithful to me. And over the next month, we sat down and we ironed out a deal where EXO Group would actually back uh, lasting wow. a new marriage company. It was amazing. I never could have predicted it, um, but but that's what happened. And that's what led me into this venture. Wow. Okay. okay. I mean, now I'm I'm not going to derail us because on our podcast, you know, people are busy. People like you and I, they're they're launching, they're leading their ventures, leading families, and so we we don't think we have much time with them before they kind of start to check out. <laughs> but I will just say this: I would love, to, you know, at some point, just to unpack what you did as far as your work. And just and the way you delivered within the context of the organization, because I mm. think this is a lot. I mean, anyone who's ever had an employer want to keep you around, and those who've who've been dismissed from employers when the, or the employer throws a miniature party when you leave, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that there's something to be said about what you, what you did during the three years, or it was three years right before you before you submitted, or was it two years? 
Yeah, a little less than three years, but two. I mean, that's, I mean, that's even more compelling, right? In twenty-four months, <laughs> you did something that that made both your leader and the leader of the organization say, "Get Steve in here with me. Don't let him just walk out the door." Right? And I think that's that says a lot about you. And and um and so I, I'm very curious about you know even hearing your playbook because about you know how you how you mm-hmm. how you enter an organization and mm-hmm. and what you did strategically. Um, because I think that's something we uh, we as entrepreneurs can all learn from as well is the idea of saying, hey, that influence doesn't happen overnight, but it doesn't take seven mm-hmm. years, right? Sure. It, doesn't, yeah. it doesn't take seven years to, you know, you have to be the most senior person on the team for that to happen. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's someone who then been there significantly longer than you. And yet, in two, yeah. and, and when they left, they were like, hey, good luck out there. We wish you the best. And, you know, and, <laughs> and I'm, it's not to play favorites, it's just, just being honest about the yeah. reality of an organization and dealing with people. Um, okay, well, so so just put a pin in that. If I come back to you about that, it has nothing to do with lasting. Yeah. But I think there's something compelling to, to hear. So mm-hmm. in your bio, you open up by saying, I'm an entrepreneur. And then I, I geeked yeah. out and I started counting up on LinkedIn the term, like the length of time you've been in each place. And it dawned on me, I was like, man, nine out of the 12 years of his, of his at least documented professional life for the public was him mm-hmm. working inside an organization. And yet the first word you use to, qual- you know, to qualify yourself as an entrepreneur. And I thought that was really cool because your entrepreneurship journey was kind of in the middle of all of, of, of your mm-hmm. entrepreneurship or your, you know, your jobs, quote unquote, with other organizations. And it made me say to myself, okay, I really feel like Steve's qualified to be called an experienced entrepreneur. And, and mm-hmm. I feel like you've clearly worked in the context of an organization and outside of it. So I'm curious to hear, I mean, you kind of told us how you got that role, which is kind of what I was hoping would happen. <laughs> but the other thing I'm curious is like, what did you, what have you seen is the, are the big differentiators between what it takes to thrive as an entrepreneur versus thrive as an entrepreneur, if there's any difference at all? Like, I mean, you could say, hey, Kevin's exactly the same. It's these two or three things. But I am curious to hear what you've seen as differences between what happened with Hoppit and what you've mm-hmm. seen with when, when you're working with, uh, you know, XO Group as well. Yeah. Well, first of all, a, a big credit goes to the the leaders at the Knot. Um, I, I joined the I joined that company. They acquired my company as they were embarking on transformation themselves. Which I guess um, that that's part one of my answer is that is you need to join the right company with appetite for entrepreneurial ventures and intrapreneurial ventures. That might even be part of your interview process. Is just to say I'm an entrepreneur at heart. What are you guys doing to really bring out the entrepreneurs in the organization? I love that's, that. That's question. awesome. I, I I love flipping the interview process on the interviewer. Yes, him or herself. Yes, <laughs> great. It's something I just love love doing, and I think the interviewer actually really appreciates that too. And so, you know, Hoppet was three years in the middle of that twelve, and now lasting has been the past two and a half. And so, obviously, I like I went into the big company thing again, and then came back out. So there's a reason why I came back out. So it's not all sunshine and, and rainbows inside the big company. Sure. But, but two very different skill sets, I find. So as an entrepreneur, like, you, you just have to be a bold person. You need to test things. You need to not be married to your opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, you, everything is always up for questioning. Um, and, but you get to make the call at the end of the day. As the founder, you get to make the call. And that is what is always different within a big company. In a big company, one of the most important skills, in addition to boldness and just questioning everything, is you need to be an amazing stakeholder manager. Like you need to convince people, you need to be an evangelist, you need to be charismatic inside a big company. Because, you know, the Knot and XO Group, that's not even that big of a company. It's about 800 
people um, worldwide. Wow. And so they're, they're obviously far bigger um, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies. Um, I would call the Knot um, like a, a mid-sized internet company. But even within an 800-person organization, in order to, to make a bold move, I would need to convince roughly 10 people that it was the right idea. Because you just couldn't do thing something at the risk of making someone else upset. And so I would say like one of the most important skills for an entrepreneur is the ability to kind of, once you have the idea, to develop the, the business case on your own. And then one by one, either through one-on-ones or through meetings with multiple people, st- slowly start to evangelize it and get buy-in. Mm-hmm. And, and that process can take anywhere from a week to months of time, especially if you know you're going to make someone very upset on the other side of the company. For instance, if you are a product guy like me and you want to launch a fairly technical venture w- with uh, using apps and websites and maybe even a little bit of deeper tech like an algorithm to recommend things, then you might make someone very uneasy or uncomfortable who's on the content side of the business whose job it is to editorialize. So let's, let's use a very clear-cut example. So an editorialist might say, here are the best 20 wedding venues in New York City. Mm-hmm. And so these are the ones you should get. But as a product guy, I'm like, okay, we could answer that question in a bunch of different ways. And so what if instead we used an algorithm or if we started with a quiz to take in 10 data points on these couples and we actually were able to recommend the top five just based on their set of variables. And so that just makes, that might make someone very uneasy on the other side of the org. And so first and foremost, it's my job to meet with that person one-on-one and tell him or her exactly why we're doing this. And it's the benefit of the user. Like we're off this company for the benefit of our users and our couples. And so this is why it's better for them. Um, and that's maybe another lesson I learned. For, for various people in the org, there's, um, there's a reason that's better than the other reason. So for this person, it's for the user. For the head of local, for the head of the business org, it's, it's the dollars that we'll see that's incremental from what we're seeing today. And so, you know, and that's kind of the, we can get to this later on the podcast if you want, but that's, that's at the core of a great product manager. They need to very uniquely understand the user and very uniquely understand the business and then marry those two things together. So even the product manager can't solely be at it for the user. They need to understand the business as well and marry those two ideals. Man, that is so good. One, one follow-up question I have, if, you, if it's a long answer, you say, not today, Kevin. But the, you, you said, you as an entrepreneur, you have to be completely content questioning all of your opinions, questioning everything, not holding your opinions too closely, but mm-hmm. still knowing you're making the call. Now, you then said, okay, well, you have that same kind of skill set to a certain extent with, as an entrepreneur, but you know you're not necessarily making the call. So you kind of get to say, my job is question, provide information and present for you to make decision stakeholder mm-hmm. or decision maker. Yeah. My question is, how do you know as an entrepreneur when to make the call when you're questioning everything? Yeah. Gosh. All we, all we have at our disposal is the data and the evidence and our, and our own guts. And... Gosh, um, every decision I make is a mix of those two things. And one, one is science and math, and the other is just this very, this sense. But it's good to know your own limits with your sense. So in some ways, if, if you were to ask me like a branding question, like, is this the right brand? Like, my, my, I don't have like a track record of making gut calls on that stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I need to do, what I would do is show 30 random strangers on usertesting.com the brand a couple branding options and see what they gravitated to and start to build an evidence case but if you were to ask me like steve will this will this screen in this app work i have a very strong guttural sense if it will work or not because of my experience and mm-hmm. so 
you know, with any, with any decision, I'm using a mix of data and gut. Um, but with some, I need way more data. And with some, I use way more gut. But regardless of what I choose, I need data after the fact to justify that it was the right decision. So that's a caveat. Yeah. Like, like I'm, I might make a call with a gut, but then after it launches, I better have some data supporting that decision or I'm being a bad founder and product manager. Do you, do you set deadlines for yourself for make decisions? Because I would imagine that, you know, based on what I've read about you and, and really even lasting as far as how you all approach research, that you all don't mind digging deep. Uh, in the weeds mm-hmm. there. With that being said, you know, there's, you know, there's always could be, there can always be more information to be gathered. So do you, mm-hmm. do you set kind of parameters? Okay. All right, guys, we're going to research this long and whatever we you know. And at that point we got to make a decision or do you kind of say, you know yeah. what, if it's that important, the decision needs to get pushed off. Yeah. I, I have to time box everything because the, I, I think one of the biggest mistakes founders and product managers make is that they get obsessed with data and like, even insofar as like when you run an experiment, you might think that you need to know the answer for why this was successful or why it didn't work. But I would even say like the, the most important factor in a venture success is the speed at which you are going to learn. Mm. And, and, and because speed is so important, I don't actually think you need to know why something worked if it did work. Mm. <laughs> Do you know what yeah, I mean? No. Like, but, but, we, but we oftentimes get obsessed with needing to know why it happened because we fool ourselves by saying, if I don't know why it happened, then down the road, this is going to lead to something bad. Like mm. if I don't know the reason for why, then, but I would just urge everyone that's called like speed is Trump's learning. <laughs> mm. And oftentimes they go, oftentimes they go together. No, like oftentimes you're going fast, like you do learn. But like, for instance, we were having this debate even this past week of like this AB experiment. And we were going to change three or four variables on our premium screen. We were going to add another payment option. We were going to take away a free trial. And we were going to make the screen more beautiful with an image. Um, and my product manager said, why don't we go one by one? Because then we'll know actually why this worked. And I was like, well, what if we tried all three at the same time? And it's an hour or more to code. So we're not losing speed. Um, or, I mean, we're not, yeah, we're not losing time or cost. And we're going to learn way more if we just jump right ahead to the full-blown solution. Because we know in our guts that that's what we want. And so we can always backtrack. If it didn't work, we can always drop one of those variables and see. But like, let's just, for, for the... For, for the sake of speed, let's do this the right way, the way our guts think, and then look at the data after the fact. I love that. Uh, that's convicting for, I think, for all of us who we, are, we care so deeply, really, about the outcome that we can research ourselves into a state of paralysis. Mm. And let me, let me drop a bomb here, because this, this rocked my world when I first heard this. And uh, so one of my, um, my most foundational experiences, uh, I, I had the privilege of studying with um, Dr. B.J. Fogg for three days um, with uh, 12 other people at his home in uh, Sonoma. B.J. Fogg is kind of the godfather of um, Silicon Valley product creation. He famously um, was the first person in the U.S. who was doing experiments on how technology affected human behavior. Wow. And he taught the Instagram founders how to iterate on their products. Um, he's just a very wise person and is now a tenured professor at Stanford uh, teaching why people act the way they work. And when, when BJ was, was talking um, and teaching, he said, he said, you can never learn from a failure as a product manager. And I, I just like, I immediately had a visceral emotional reaction because I was like, that's not true. I was like, I was in corporate strategy. Like one of our methods for learning how to move the business forward was studying the case studies that were failures and learning what they did bad. And, and BJ stopped the class and he's like, 
if you fail, it could be for any reason. Like if Instagram would have failed, it could have been because they had an argument with their board member. It could have been because the guy's personal life was falling apart. It could have been because the product wasn't doing what it did. But like it could have been for any reason. Mm. And so you only really understand, you only learn when something goes absolutely right. When all of the cocktail of variables line up and it just works, that's when you actually learn something. Mm. And that's what you can learn from other companies too. When something's working for somebody else, you can actually look at their experience and know they're doing it right. But I, that just shocked me and, and rocked my world. So that's now how we make decisions with team lasting. Like we're going to move fast and do what we think is right and not go step by step because, because we don't think we're going to learn when we fail. <laughs> wow. I'll, I'll be honest. I'm still wrestling with that idea. Like, I mean, I'm, uh, cause yeah. I'm, like, I'm like, I'll probably, you know, email you in a couple of days and be like, okay, you got me, you know, because right now I'm like, I'm like, but, but what do you mean? You know, it, it, got, it goes against so much of what we mm-hmm. hear, even as kids, right? I mean, you know, hey, you know, there's no such thing as failure, only learning. Like there's there's a lot, there's yeah. a lot of like ideas yeah. that I'm wrestling with right now. It even makes me uncomfortable to say it out loud. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> like because the, the the adage is fail off and fail fast. And I but I think the spirit of it is just speed. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um and so like go fast. Who cares if you fail, but go fast so that you can reach the cocktail that works. Do you know yes. what I mean? Yes. Okay. Well, okay. So one of the, one of my last questions before we dig deeper into lasting, and I feel like I owe it to everyone who's listening to ask you this question because I wanted to ask this question myself. I mean, you clearly have led strategy for a product. You've developed a lot of products, managed multiple mm-hmm. products. Um, like I said, one thing he didn't mention in his, in his humble introduction, right, about his, mm-hmm. about himself is that he's built three apps that were featured in Apple's best new apps section. Um, obviously, the Knots app. Blasting has already uh, done really well in that section as well. You directed product management for a marketplace that generated $80 million in revenue. You you alluded a little bit of this in your last question. Are there any key lessons you think we should all know when it comes to product development? Like what's a key ingredient in the the process of developing one or one against traction, right? One that's not failing. Um, There's something, you know, something, anything behind the scenes we should be aware of as well. I think once again, the people who listen to this podcast, they might have found a pain point. And mm-hmm. I'll be I'll be candid and say most of us do not have product management experience. It's the mm-hmm. entrepreneur who felt a piece of pain and then started to build on the idea, may have validated the idea along the way, you know, selling it, mm-hmm. making a prototype, et cetera. But they're not product managers by profession to have this mm-hmm. toolkit to pull from. So I would love to hear you just kind of mentor all of us a little bit on that. <laughs> Yeah, you're going to have to stop me if I just start talking for two hours because I could really talk a long time about this. This is my this is my passion. I, I love creating digital products through a, a scientific methodology. Mm. So I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a few, um, and you can feel free to ask probing questions or stop me. Seriously, feel comfortable to stop me. Um, so the biggest thing I have learned in product management, again, it actually comes from BJ Fogg. Um, if you guys want to spend a day just learning from Fogg, it will will be a very good day. <laughs> um, so in, in this three days with, with uh, these 12 product managers in Silicon Valley, he, he opened with the phrase, I've never seen a consumer company fail that's gotten these two things right. And everybody just shut up because they're like, what are you about to sell us? And he said uh, two things. This, these people, uh, they help people do what they already want to do. Okay. In other words, you're not trying to mo- motivate or convince anyone to do anything because people won't change. So as a product person, you have to help people do what they already want to do. And two, while they're doing that thing that they already want to do, you make them feel successful. He also uses the word powerful. You make them feel powerful. 
And so two, two famous examples, we'll just use Instagram and Uber since they're very famous companies. Um, people already want to take photos and people already want to share them. So that's not something you have to motivate someone to do. They already have existing levels of motivation. And yet when they, with Instagram, that you feel like a professional photographer and, and it's, it happens within a few taps. Um, and so you've made someone feel very successful and they feel successful because it's not only more beautiful than it was when they took it, but they feel powerful and successful because people are liking it and you get these dopamine rushes. Wow. Okay. With Uber, people already need to get from point A to point B. Like you obviously don't need to convince someone to go to the airport <laughs> to, to get their flight. And yet within a single tap, again, a prof- like a, your personal driver shows up at your doorstep. So you feel very successful. And so, you know, with lasting, uh, we noticed that like people, people, you don't have to motivate people to be good spouses. Like that's an, an internal thing we want. We want to be a good partner. We want to be a good spouse. And yet oftentimes we don't know how to do that. There's no playbook for us. And especially when there's a problem, we don't know how to get out of it. And so with lasting, we wanted to use that same foggy and thought, like help people do what they want to do, be a good partner and work through a problem and make them feel successful. So we're guiding two people, a couple through this process of relational change. And each session in lasting takes under five minutes. And it just seems like it's really easy and they don't know why it's so easy, but they feel successful when they have a good relationship outcome. So, so that's one. We've really tried to embody those two fog principles. Here's my second one. Uh, it's from a guy named Brent Turetsky, a great Great product mind. He was the chief product officer at Udacity. We're lucky to have him as chief product officer at XO Group The Knot. Um, and now he's at Envision as their chief product officer. Um, so he taught me this when I was, I came to him with a problem one day. Um, and I said, Brent, you know, th- there's many different starting points for this problem I want to solve. I want to solve a problem. But like, what if I started here? And like, but, and I, and I iterated, but like, that wasn't the right starting point. And, and Brent just like smiled and he's like, that's the global maximum problem. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, Steve, like product managers can take anything and iterate on it and make it better. Like that's what we do. We could take anything and make it better. But what if you reach this local maximum? Like it's not as good as it could be because you chose the wrong starting point. And so if, let's say you had 10 different starting points. Um, one of those is the global maximum and all the others are local. So there's only one starting point that's the maximum level of outcome mm. for your business. And I was like, that's amazing. That's a fascinating concept. And so really when you're starting a, a company, the only option you have to learn about that global maximum is just to prototype as much as you can. Prototype as fast and as effective as you can to learn what you need to learn. And when you do that, um, the chief product officer at Netflix, a guy named Gib Biddle, he's, he's not there anymore, but he was, he, he used the term signals of hope. Like you're looking for signals of hope. And I love that phrase because yeah. it's, pre- it's not precise. It's kind of abstract. Like a signal could be an obvious one, like more, way more people are paying for this, or it could be they're just opening the product a lot more than the other one, but they're not paying for it, but that signal is there. Yeah. And so it's like, as you launch your, your many starting points, you're looking for these signals and then you're using you know, a mix of, again, science and gut. But, but those two things alone, the BJ Fogg and, and the Brent Turetsky principle have, have led me a long way. And so with lasting, um, I was given the privilege of, of being an entrepreneur in residence for, um, for a year and during that time, I just prototyped as much as I could. We had nine different marriage prototypes, if you can believe wow. that. But one of them, Kevin, crushed the other eight. And that was the concept we landed on. And I truly believe we have the global maximum product. And we're just going to iterate until, until we get there. Man, I've, wow. Okay. So, so I'm, I, when we're done, I'm going to make sure that I get those names right and links to whatever we should, we should share with everyone in the show notes. Because I definitely felt like 
and you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of prototyping some new uh, version of what I'm doing in my business. And I've never heard uh, the idea of, of the global maximum. Is that what is global mm-hmm. maximum principle that you said? That's right. And to me, I'm like, that makes so much sense. Because I think that it's, I mean, as an entrepreneur, I mean, one of the things that I've, I've always seen different in my in my journey, because um, I started moonlighting a lot before with, while also working for other employers before I took the leap to go mm-hmm. my own, and I think I've always stumbled into various local maxims, like mm-hmm. in the sense that like th- making money wasn't necessarily going to be the problem, mm-hmm. as long as I just wanted to be self-employed and just be me. Mm-hmm. But once you want to say, I want to help more people, I want to scale this to support more people, then mm-hmm. that's when I immediately would kind of bump into this reality saying, no, this is a local maximum, mm-hmm. you know, the way this is constructed. Uh, even the prototype of it is constructed in a way where like, this is going to be tough to to crack yeah. the code and, you know, and, and have margin that actually makes you money. So I'm very, I'm, I'm yeah. very, very fascinated by that. And I, and I think, I think for all of us who are listening, I think it's just... I think I just want to encourage all of us who are listening, myself, speaking to myself first, to recognize that product management and is a part of our job. You know, I, and I think that many of us we say, "I'm passionate, I'm willing to work," and I think those character attributes are meaningful. But I do mm. believe that at some point we're face to face with the reality that we are a team of one when you're first getting started, and that might t- might mean you have to learn. Of what you know, what's really happening? Um, I'm, a, I mean, I would say I'm much more of a natural sales guy, and once again, mm-hmm. that's great for revenue, but it doesn't necessarily breed the kind of learning that might lead to a scalable opportunity with a global max, the global maximum. So that's powerful. Yeah. All right, so I want to make sure you get to lasting because otherwise, sure. I think your team will be really mad at me because <laughs> I'm taking this much of your time. So I learned about lasting, uh, I would say about a couple months ago from my good friend, Callie Murray, who is now on your team yeah. at lasting. And, um, and at the time, you know, I just was, I was amazed by the idea uh, because my wife and I had actually, you know, we, we've been married for at this, well, we're recording this. We met for seven years and mm, we had just, congratulations. Oh, thank you, my friend. You know, I definitely feel like every year we make it, I definitely want to throw myself a party. I'm just like, oh my gosh, we did it. We did it again. And it's not because because we don't love each other. It's just like, man, like every year I feel like, you know, just life stuff happens that makes it a little bit more difficult. Um, Mm. We had just gone to marital counseling for the first time uh, since pre-engagement counseling, you know, and marital and and, um, pre-engagement counseling. And it was really enjoyable uh, for both of us. Mm. And um, we really liked what it was bringing out of us. and I and I, so I was interested in lasting, and yeah. so so. I, but I'm not going to pitch it the way you're going to do a good job of it. So <laughs> tell everybody what last you kind of allude to a little bit what lasting is, but let's get a little bit more mm-hmm. in the weeds on it. What is lasting? How does it work? Um, exactly. What's the what's the pitch on that? Yeah, so lasting makes marriage counseling simple. The best way to describe it is like a gym membership for your marriage. And what happens at the gym? A trainer meets with you on day one assesses where you're strong and where you're weak, and then sets up a plan for you to improve. And that's exactly what lasting does for your relationship. The very first interaction with lasting, you take a very quick assessment, which gets to the core of your emotional needs in the relationship and assesses where you're strong and weak as a couple. And based on where you're strong and weak as a couple, we line up a string of sessions that are personalized for you. And a session could be an audio track where we distill the decades of research on healthy conflict and what that looks like. And then we unpack that in the next session with an exercise where you answer 
when you answer some really soulful questions about conflict in your relationship and what that looks like. But the core interaction of the entire app, just like marriage counseling, is to really unpack what's in your mind and in your heart for each other. I like to say that it's peeking inside your partner's brain, if only for just a minute, to see how they feel about these different issues in your relationship. But what I like about it is it's this truly unbiased moderator between you two. That you know, when you're on a when you're on a date, which is a very healthy relationship activity, you would you probably wouldn't ask the question like, "Hey, Kevin, are you good at empathy? <laughs> like, are, like, are you good at that?" And so, like, Lassing actually asked that about your partner, like, "Hey, Steve, is Becca great at empathy? And how good is she?" And so, like, you'd remark on that and then unpack that. Why? And so she could actually see that that level of, of feedback from you and go from there. And so that that's why it's like we we like to say it's making marriage counseling more simple because. And there's a lot of barriers to marriage counseling. There's the cost barrier, there's the time barrier, there's the schedule barrier. And, and then there's a barrier that almost no one ever talks about, but the largest factor in a successful therapy relationship is the fit with the therapist. Like, is, is this person a good fit with us and what, what we want to achieve? And because it's so expensive, finding a fit could take one, two, or three times to find the right therapist. And now you're already down $1,000 by the time you found the right one. Right. And so ours is 12 bucks a month. We've distilled literally decades of research, uh, research that have they've covered couples over 30, 40 years of time and have tracked them and seen why they're successful or seen why the marriage dissolved. And so we've taken all that into a very simple mobile application for, for you and yours. Wow. Okay. Okay. And and so I recently downloaded Lasting. I'll be honest, when, she, when Callie first told me about it, I was like, I'm, I, mean, I think it's incredible, but I was hesitant. And I don't know why. That's what's so weird about it. Because once you go to, once you go to counseling, yeah. you're going to have to do that, you know, and pay that much money and pay for babysitter to go to counseling, which is like the worst date night you could think of. It's like, it's like the least, it's like the least most, like the least fun date night you could possibly have. Like, hey, let's go to counseling for a date night. But when I downloaded it and I, and I didn't even tell my wife about it first, I just wanted to go through it myself. Mm-hmm. And I took the assessment and I went through the first session um, in, the, in, the, in the trial account. And it took four minutes before I was like, OMG. Like, I, I mean, and I'm not saying this because you're on this thing, Steve, because I, I would have left the question out if I, if, if I didn't feel this strongly about it. In four minutes, I definitely learned a new concept that will change the way I see my marriage forever. And then, wow. and, 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 and so you can steal this quote later, but I mean, I mean, with, with all sincerity, um, the people who counseled my wife and I during pre-engagement did an amazing job giving mm-hmm. us tools to get us to the point where we wouldn't kill each other in six months. But the reality <laughs> is they, they said, we're giving you tools. And mm-hmm. I, and I, and I, and I think that this is another tool and it's so educational in, in its immediate you know, interactions yeah. that whether your spouse gets on board or not, like I already knew, I, I kind of started smiling because I, I don't want to tell my wife about it too much. Cause I'm like, man, cause then I can't be like a cool husband who just changed. She's like, man, my husband's so cool. All of a sudden, what did he do? Like, I kind of yeah. wanted, I kind of wanted to steal credit. I did not. I told her, <laughs> I told her about it, Steve. I, I didn't do that, but I, but you know, but I was like, man, it's amazing. So I mean, and, and to relate that, let's just back to product management. This, that was, this may seem like a simple insight, but this was to me the most uh, company, game-changing insight of the entire venture. And it's the simple fact that every other couple's product requires two people to do it together. Isn't that interesting? Like you would assume for a couple's product that two people should do it. And as a user experience designer, I would design for that. But in our prototyping phase, we noticed this really interesting, I guess, trifurcation, not even bifurcation. But one, one in one group, the couple did it together. And the next group, somebody wanted the other to join, but the other was hesitant. But in this third very interesting group, 
It was just one spouse who wanted to like beef up their spouse skills. It's a use case we had never thought about. And so that highly informed the design of the products. Like we built it so that one person could do it alone. Um, but of course we want both people in the couple to use it. But I was just, it was, it was a game changing insight. And now um, uh, over a third of our paying subscriber base is that single user who doesn't invite their partner. I totally see it, Steve. I mean, because after using it, I was like, I'll pay for this regardless of wants to do it or not. I don't, I don't really mean, I don't really care because I, because I know that I need the help. No, I mean, I'm just being honest. I, I know I need the help. And I, I mean, mm-hmm. it's just so easy for me to find resources to help me thrive as an entrepreneur or even as a dad. And I just felt like the way you all did it, the, the quick, the, I mean, the ease. In, I mean, I felt like you took all my excuses away. Um, <laughs> and I, you, you're not asking for all this. So my question, um, before we kind of wrap up, I have a couple more questions for you. And mm-hmm. and and, the, and you kind of alluded to one really well uh, as far as between a counselor and an app. But you you alluded to in an article you wrote on LinkedIn. Uh, you said, mm-hmm. you said, why employers should invest in marriage counseling? Mm-hmm. And I... I wasn't going to read it at first because I was like, man, I don't want to steal all the content for the podcast. But I literally was just drawn to that idea. Um, mm-hmm. And I found some of the things you put in there to be really interesting in counter, in, in, you know, counter culture. I'd love for you to share a couple of those ideas with, with listeners. Why should employers invest in marriage counseling for their employees? Yeah. So uh, most things I'll, I'll tell people have a, a personal layer and then a scientific layer. <laughs> and so the personal layer on this one is, when Becca and I get into a fight, Becca's my wife, I am a terrible employee. <laughs> I'm truly terrible because that's all I can think about. And my mind is racing. And, and um, I'll jump to the science, science part, but scientifically, like the, the brain has to move towards resolution. It has to. It, it has to like wrap up things in a nice tidy box. And so, for instance, when, when somebody hurts you, if you've ever been caught in a pattern of ruminating, and ruminating is the process of replaying an event again and again and again and again, you're, you're replaying it again and again and again because you're trying to, like it was an emotional event, it had no basis in logic, but your brain is attempting to assign logic to it because you think that'll ease your pain. But super ironically and cruelly, the more you think about it, the more you replay it, the more you tend to revisit it because the brain has to come to resolution. But because you're trying to logicize it and it's an emotional event, you'll never come to resolution until you can actually deal with your own emotions. Wow. Anyway, and, so, and so in this case, like if Beck and I got into a fight, it's all I could think about until it's resolved. And that's why I'm a terrible employee because I can't think about the productivity of my business. So anyways, that was the personal layer. And then the science layer, there's been some remarkable research done on marriage in the workplace. And what I mean by that is happy, healthy couples um, just feel very empowered. Like the cognitive story of a healthy marriage is my partner has my back. They'll be there for me. Like I just boiled down 50 years of marriage research into a single sentence. Like over time, couples develop one of two stories. My partner will be there for me or my partner will not be there for me. And that's mm-hmm. the primary reason why my marriages sometimes end in divorce is because over thousands of interactions, you actually start to believe your partner won't be there for you. Wow. And so in a healthy marriage, when you know that your partner's there for you, you are just naturally far more productive in the workplace because you have this, this like thing at home that is there for you, waiting for you. And regardless of what happened that day, they're with you. Um, on the other side of things, from a scientific perspective, um, we now know that roughly a third of sick leave is their direct result of marital and family conflict, which is crazy. Yeah, that is nuts. One of the craziest stats I've learned. And it's because in an unhealthy relationship, your daily production of cortisol, the stress hormone, is through the roof. 
And so like, if you have cortisol way more often being pumped through your veins on a daily basis, of course, you're going to get sick more often, but it's, it's a very overlooked variable in terms of like why we get sick. It's just, mm -hmm. is your relationship healthy? <laughs> and so actually in some leading hospitals, including the Mayo Clinic, um, when you're diagnosing a chronic illness, people actually have started asking questions about their, their, their relationship health and their marriage health, which is also pretty fascinating from a, from a doctor's perspective. It is fascinating. I, I mean, I, I look forward to hopefully seeing when you and your team have some data for organizations that have provided lasting for their teams mm -hmm. and what's mm -hmm. happened to sick leave or job satisfaction or, or just general revenue for the organization. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I, I mean, my obviously my hunch aligns with the research that yeah. is going to probably make a big difference um i'll call i'll call you up when we're ready i mean yeah i mean that's i mean please we, we're gonna have, have that news break here first before you do it on good morning america yeah so and so what i'd love to do is kind of wrap up here with, with two questions and mm -hmm. that's one is like okay hey is there something you've seen from your research that entrepreneurs entrepreneurs launchers need to be mindful of in particular when it comes to their relationship uh with a significant other their mm -hmm. spouse their partner and, 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 you know, and because I think I want to pause there before I answer my next follow up. Because I just feel sure. like, if, if there's, I mean, if there's not a blind spot in particular, but I think that would be something we could all benefit from. Yeah, gosh. Um, I have two answers to that question, if that's okay. Sure. Um, the first is that there's a really remarkable study out there that um, actually analyzes the brain patterns of an entrepreneur when uh, this was specifically for men. Um, I can't wait till they do the female version of this. Um, it was a study on men. And it had, uh, when, their, when their venture was under a threat, like bad things were happening in the company, and they analyzed the exact same scenario of the brain when uh, his child was under a threat, like when, he, when, when his child was sick, for instance. And um, what happened was the, the exact same waves with the exact same magnitude and the exact same places in the brain lit up, like with very similar levels of gravity. Yikes. And so, and so like, so in, in, in almost in reality, like the venture is just as important to you as your own child. And that may offend some people and I don't even fully wrap my head around it, but it is what it is. Like that's what the study showed. And so if, if that's the case, if we just took that as an underlying assumption that your venture is important as, as your child, then gosh, that has a host of interesting relationship questions. It's like, how can a spouse support something when it's that important? Like how can they be there for you? That's a very important reflection for couples where one person is, is an entrepreneur and especially for couples where both are entrepreneurs. Like, how can I support you? And when you've had a terrible day, when your venture's under a threat, how can I be there for you? But for the person who has the venture, please be mindful of the fact that your relationship and your child, I know your brain's letting up the same way, but this is far more important in the long run. People who are happy and healthy long at the end of their life, they've chosen family and they've chosen close intimate relationships. And so that is my largest piece of advice. No that um, ventures are oftentimes temporary and they're not a true part of your identity and your hmm. family is. Second part is actually um, a segue in the identity thing. I think entrepreneurs have a, the, the biggest trap you can possibly walk into as an entrepreneur is making it your core identity. That is bad for a host of reasons, including that it's a very volatile venture which has ups and downs on a daily basis. And if it's the source of your identity, that can just lead to a very stressful life. But what I think it's overlooked, and I guess the lasting tie-in to that point is that like, I think relational health needs to be at the core of every entrepreneur's journey. If only because of, of what I said in, in your last question, Kevin, like the cognitive story of, of a healthy relationship is like, this person has my back. 
And so if you're in a venture, a very volatile venture, and someone you don't know that someone has your back and you're not investing in that person, like where does that leave you? Where's your support system at? I mean, even if you're not married, um, every person has a need for a primary attachment relationship, looking at the science of relationships. And for, for a married couple, that attachment relationship is your spouse. But if you're not married, that could be your parent or a mentor or a best friend, like someone you know you can depend on, who at any, every step of the way has your back. That does remarkable things for you. Um, it, contrary to popular belief, you, your own exploration of yourself and becoming a truly healthy self doesn't start with yourself. <laughs> it starts with the primary attachment relationship. And, and, and people with healthy attachments, um, they take more risks. They go on more adventures. They, they, have a, they explore their sense of self in remarkable ways because they know someone has their back. Wow. And when that's wow. not in your life, when that's not in your life, you actually don't explore. You, you feel constricted to truly explore who you are. Wow. And so I like, to, I like to mention that just because I think people think inter, like independence is a sexy word and dependence is not. But super ironically, and uh, a healthy dependence leads to a remarkable healthy independence. Man, that is so profound and really helpful. Yeah, I, I'm not going to share my personal journey right now because we're so late on time. But I definitely think there's a lot of that being revealed to me. And it's really great testimony. Like you just kind of just throw the words on it and say, this is what you're looking at. This is what you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. So any final words or advice for the entire community that you can share based on your professional journey. I mean, you've done a lot in what, what feels like a really short period of your, of your working life. And obviously you have so much more ahead. And so I just love mm -hmm. to hear, hear your thoughts and maybe some advice you might give to us as, as we kind of enter our individual ventures or opportunities at our, at our jobs or at newcomers we're creating um, as entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs. Yeah. I think I'll wrap up with this. Um, another mentor once said this. I'm trying to share all the things that have truly rocked my. I love this. The found, foundational, like my mind. Um, and one mentor said, and I think it was actually a quote from Kierkegaard. So I don't want to steal Soren Kierkegaard, but uh, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. I'll say that once more because I find it fascinating. What the heart wants the will chooses and the mind justifies. In other words, uh, your heart has already made the decision and then you rationalize it with your mind. And so m as far as it depends on you, some people can't you did because of they need to provide for their families or they're locked into a situation. Some people can't always do what their heart wants, but, but I like to, as far as it depends on you, just, just follow your heart because you're going you're, you're gonna to end up doing it anyways or you're going to be dissatisfied that you didn't do it. And so throughout my career, um, I've had the opportunity to choose my heart, but but especially as you're choosing a startup venture, trying to decide moving from a big company to a startup company, like just do the thing that makes your heart sing, that makes it like leap out of your chest. And that, that has universally never been a bad choice for me because even if it hasn't worked out financially or whatever, um, I, I didn't regret it. And the thing, the thing you don't want is, is regret in your career. And so, man, do what your heart wants. That is amazing. You know, before I let you go, where can people connect with you and learn more about lasting? Yeah, I'd love to connect with everybody on this <laughs> podcast. So uh, my email is just simply steve at getlasting.com. That's our, that's our website is getlasting.com. The joker that it owns, lasting.com, wants a half a million dollars. So I'm not going to buy lasting.com from him. <laughs> um, <laughs> But so uh, Steve Eck at Lasting. And then, of course, if you want to try Lasting, which I recommend even for um, if you've just started dating, if you're in a serious relationship or if you've been married for 50 years, I think it is a helpful product because it takes into account where you're at. 
And so uh, either go to getlasting.com or just look for Lasting in either App Store, Apple or Google Play. I, well, first of all, Steve, thanks for hanging out with me, man. And I, I mean, once again, I, you all heard my endorsement of the app. You know, like I said, I, I'm not a paid endorser. I don't get a kickback. But I, I mean, I, I would be I would be misrepresenting my experience if I didn't tell you how impactful four minutes were. And, you know, just to have language, even to talk to your spouse or your partner about what you're feeling and to have a coach send you reminders throughout the day to do things or think about for uh, your, your partner, your spouse and show appreciation or to, uh, you know, connect and give a hug or um, offer to help. The reality is, we, as what Steve already alluded to, we spend a lot of our time trying to solve unique, complex problems as we move our ventures and our ideas forward. And anyone who's listened to this podcast likely knows that it's not because you don't love your partner that you didn't think about them for the last four hours. You've been trying, you've been throwing yourself, being as present as you can in the current present problem you're facing. And so it's nice to have somebody tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, let me help you do the thing you already want to do, as he alluded to. Um, and you can set the times when it happens. And I think that alone already already proved some dividends for me today. So I got some cool points. Thanks to uh, Steve and the team at Lasting. Steve, I, I really can't thank you enough for being on here. It's cool to hear your journey and have it all kind of woven into the story of Lasting and what you all are doing over there. Really, really grateful for the time. So, hey, everybody, Steve dropped a lot of nuggets really fast. He also <laughs> gives a lot of great resources to check out. If you want to get access to them, go to the show notes. Every week we try to do our part to make sure that summaries of the episodes are done for you. So if you're listening in the car doing a commute, if you are working out, if you're doing yard work, if you're in a carpool line, I mean, whatever you're doing right now, you have the pressure. The pressure is alleviated from you remembering all those things he shared. You can just go right over to launch university. That's wowuniversity.com forward slash podcast. You're going to see everything there for you, um, including the episode featuring Steve and all the great things he shared with us. Uh, we have links to lasting over there, even though get lasting is very easy to remember. Um, and, it's, uh, and it's on your iPhone and your Android, but it's all there for you. Um, as well as the, the fact that we really, really want to make sure that you can grow on the go. So that happens best when you automate the same way you want to automate your relationship counseling. You want to automate some things. You can automate how you learn by subscribing to the podcast to have these things brought to you every single week. Um, and that's that's a big part of why we do this. We want to help you grow as you go. And so that's a big part of it. Last thing, last thing. We would love for you to leave a review. Tell us how this podcast is serving you. Let us know how we can improve it. Um, we are committed to doing so. And when you go to Launch University, you can even leave us a question. That's right. We actually are gathering your questions together, and we're going to do a community community Q&A episode once we have enough in the tank. And so we'd love to hear from you, especially as you, as you go into this new year. Do not sit on the sidelines struggling when you have access to people who want to help you. And so we want to alleviate your excuses by bringing you great inter information for people like Steve and our other guests, but also we are, we're offering ourselves up as a resource as well. So uh, take us up on that offer. We'd be happy to help. All right. So thank you again for listening to this uh, episode of the Launch University podcast, and we hope to have you join us next time. Thanks for listening to the Launch University podcast. We hope it's helped you move from go-getter to difference maker. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more helpful resources, visit launchuniversity.com.